I have this really distinct memory of going bowling with some friends one night in Denver where I grew up. I must have been around 14. I remember looking around and noticing all these guys. They were probably in their late teens or early 20s. And the song Real Men by Joe Jackson was stuck in my head. Take your mind back. I don't know when. Sometime when it always seemed to be just us and them. Girls that wore pink and boys that wore blue. Boys that always grew up better men than me and you. My memory of it was like a slow motion scene from a movie. The cooler older guys with their baseball caps and jockish attire, chewing tobacco, drinking Coors Light, and just being dudes. I remember thinking, I'll never be like them. I always felt I wasn't a normal guy. I didn't like sports. I wasn't tough. I liked music and cooking and arty things. But then, I also liked girls. So I didn't think I was gay, and at 14 probably didn't understand what being gay meant exactly. But I felt different. And I had just been bar mitzvahed a year prior, but I worried I'd never be a real man. And the song just spoke to me in the way that songs speak to us when we're 14. Now, 30 years later, I still think about what it means to be a real man, or a real woman for that matter. When I started hearing about this notion of gender fluidity, it got me thinking back to that time. I realized that much like one's spirituality and religion can be thought to exist on a spectrum, so can one's gender. So, it's January 2016, and in honor of the non-Jewish New Year, on this episode of The Kibbutz, we're going to be focusing on the theme of transitions. What does the Jewish ritual around becoming a man or becoming a woman really mean? Is there such a thing as religious fluidity? What does it mean to become a real Jew? Of course, no bit of culture has better tackled and embodied questions of both gender fluidity and Judaism than Transparent, the totally brilliant, award-winning Amazon series. And in this episode, I'll be talking with two of the producers of Transparent, Zachary Drucker, who is Jewish and trans, as well as writer and producer Micah Fitzerman Blue. This action-packed episode also includes another installment of Kasher vs. Kasher, the story of writer Christopher Noxon's Jewish conversion featuring his true tale of adult circumcision. Yes, I said adult circumcision. The host of Israel Story, known as the Israeli This American Life, will tell us about his legendary bar mitzvah. And of course, my 95-year-old Nana is back to tell some jokes. Rana and Bev will return on our next episode. And finally, just a warning, uh, we do have a few bits of adult language, and we'll call them adult scenarios on this episode. So you may want your kids to go fix you some dinner while you relax and listen. And with that, I say, let's transition into the kibitz. Zachary Drucker is an internationally recognized artist who has performed and exhibited her work in galleries, film festivals, and museums, including the Whitney Biennial, MoMA PS1, the Hammer Museum, and SF MoMA, among others. She's an Emmy-nominated producer for the docuseries This Is Me, a cast member on the e-docuseries I Am Kate, and a co-producer on the Golden Globe and Emmy-winning show Transparent. Here's our conversation, recorded in her closet in Los Angeles. So, I like this. Yeah, yeah this is good. Bad. It's like we're on a. <laughs> it's like we're on a. We're on a talk show. We're on a talk yeah, show. Basically, I think when I met you, you talked mm-hmm. a little bit about 
how your trans identity is is really such a primary focus of who you are. And so it's hard for you to think about what your Jewish identity is. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that in the same way that women in the black power movement were sort of forced with choosing a side or taking an allegiance with either their identity as women versus their identity as African-American, trans people have also kind of marginalized the other aspects of their cultural background in favor of joining a movement that has no boundaries or borders between cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always say that, you know, the trans community is the most diverse community because there is nothing that unifies us in terms of our backgrounds. So, yeah, in terms of Judaism, I mean, it's interesting because my most comfortable moments in adolescence were in synagogue because it was a smaller group of kids that I had known since I was five years old who were much more accepting and much more kind of I guess on the margins in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, where there was definitely a Jewish population, but we weren't the majority by a long shot. I think that the relationship to Jews in the civil rights movement, for example, is a really kind of unique position because Jews are oftentimes perceived as a part of the dominant culture, the status quo but are simultaneously on the outside of it or on the perimeter. And I think that one of the big rifts in the trans community is really between white trans people and trans people of color because the multiple intersections of race, class, gender can create a really fatal um, and dire set of circumstances that, you know, as white people, we have access to a whole range of things. And that's not universal. I mean, there's plenty of exceptions for that, but I was really fortunate to have a supportive family and a supportive community. And I don't take any of that for granted. But I do oftentimes think about how being both Jewish and trans offers this position to kind of see things from a more complex perspective Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah, I think a lot about how to be you know the best ally I can be when did you start realizing things were different for you and and really young but yeah I mean I always knew that I was different and my earliest memories actually are of feeling a schism between Uh the social expectations that have been laid out for me and the way that I really felt. And so how did you express that? Yeah, how did you express <laughs> it or how did you deal with it and what, you know, in what ways did those manifest, you know, those feelings kind of manifest? Yeah, I consider this my earliest art project mm. was my mother had a chest of dress-up clothes in the basement and I would kind of disappear into the basement and reemerge as usually some kind of feminine person, right? With like an old prom dress on and a scarf over my head. And I'd have my parents take a Polaroid picture of me. And I had a photo album filled with all these Polaroids of like these various feminine selves. And I think that art making always provided a site for me to see myself differently Mm -hmm. or to see myself outside of the physical parameters that... I found myself in, I guess, probably when I entered 
elementary school or first grade, I realized that that was outside of the norm. And yeah. it's always when kids are socialized that I think the real world kind of enters. And there was definitely no precedent for that at the time. I mean, this is the mid-1980s. Um, my family, though very progressive in many ways and also educated, didn't know trans people or didn't mm -hmm. even necessarily think that that was going to exist within their family. So I think it was a big surprise for them and it took a while for them to kind of figure it out. Yeah. And then, so how did you get involved with Transparent and Jill and that whole... Through a CalArts friend. Oh, really? Surprisingly okay. enough, my friend Alana Mann, okay. who's also an artist, um, is involved with East Side Jews and knew that Jill was creating a pilot. Um, and at the time, I was in a relationship with Reese Ernst, who's still my collaborator and co-worker. Um, and he had met Jill at Sundance. They both had films in a shorts program. And she, shortly after that, followed up with him saying, my parent just came out as trans. Do you have film recommendations? So Reese and I compiled this list for Jill to pass on to her MAPA. And then I think it was like a year later, or maybe even less, that we were kind of reintroduced to Jill because she was developing the pilot. And that was in July of 2013. <laughs> the obvious question is, you know, what did you ever expect this to happen? But I... Well, first of all, I should say that I didn't expect any of this to happen in my lifetime. To see, you know, trans people have existed throughout civilization, like from the earliest human civilizations. And we've always really been in the dark in a lot of ways. So the fact that I'm living in a time where we're witnessing a type of visibility that's never happened before is really a gift. I mean, I feel really fortunate to be experiencing this moment, but we certainly didn't expect that from the show. I think that the, you know, Transparent was a dark horse, even from the very beginning. But what I do know is that it was conceived of and created with so much love and i think that that love has really reverberated and so what is your role on the show like you're sort of a <clears throat> consulting producer we came on during the pilot as transgender consultants and then when we went to season recently both became associate producers and then in season two we're co-producers um we have like such a huge range of tasks from the writing stage, sort of like reading outlines for scripts, reading scripts, just sort of advising the writer's room, really kind of monitoring the politics of representation and thinking about what will kind of push the narrative forward in a way that can also help motivate change outside of the show. And I think that the entertainment industry actually is a a really unique medium for social change because it has the opportunity to influence hearts and minds, which people then take into the voting booth. And I think ultimately Hollywood and the entertainment industry can catalyze social change and then legislation follows, you know? It's interesting that you're Jewish, you know, or at least half Jewish as well, and have kind of a Jewish identity. Do you ever find yourself... <laughs> 
you know, reading something in the script and being like, nah, I don't know about this as like, not as a trans person, but as a Jewish person. Yeah, totally. I think I'm the only person who embodies both the Jewish and the trans elements uh-huh. of Transparent on staff. Yeah, so I, I do think about those things a lot. I've always encouraged more Yiddish, and uh-huh. especially with Judith, which she does anyways. Yeah. You know, I think of like my grandparents and my great-grandmother who was around. Like Yiddish was basically her first or second language. Yeah. And she was the original pioneer, really, like in, in our family tree. I mean, my great-grandmother, she came to the U.S. in like 19... 19- 14 so it was actually before world war one but she lived in the lower east side she lived in the tenements and i think really enjoyed cross-dressing just for fun and after she passed we kind of discovered a dozen photographs of her and her female friends in full-on three-piece suits and cigars wow and granted, it was mainly in photo studios in the Lower East Side. So it yeah. was kind of, you know, it was probably a more vaudevillian thing than anything else. Maybe they were having fun. But it wasn't accidental that, you know, I mean, that she kept on doing it or that she did it like yeah. at least a dozen times. And thinking about that and creating the Berlin 1933 yeah. narrative was actually really informative. I think there is something unique about Judaism and transness in that we are a really cohesive tribe and we really believe in, you know, maintaining and surviving as a tribe. And I've never felt from my Jewish family on the outside. When I think about my many friends who have been ejected from their families of origin it's amazing how the jewish community has really really put themselves to the forefront of acceptance for trans people i mean you know the reform jewish organization Uh they just announced the broadest most inclusive policy that any religious organization has ever extended to the trans community yeah yeah that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Made me really proud. The I guess the last thing I'm kind of curious about is, is it a positive portrayal of Jews? Or I mean, it's a clearly an honest portrayal of Jews, but I wonder what a kind of a non-Jew watching it thinks like, oh my God, Jews are fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a subjective portrayal. I think it's sort of hard to generalize or hard to wonder what it looks like from an outside perspective. And... I don't think that the Pfefferman family represents all American Jews by any means. But I watch it and I feel like Judith, you know, Shelley could be my grandmother and Sarah could be my cousin Jenny and Josh could be my brother and Gabby could be Jill Soloway or whatever. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, they all feel like some weird extended family. Totally. They absolutely do. Yeah. All right, well, thanks. Yeah. This has been awesome to sit here in your closet. And, yes. Uh, and wanna, thanks for coming. I want to try some things on. Thanks for I, coming <laughs> to the closet. <laughs> There's course. some things that would fit you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, thanks so much. Thank you. And now my conversation with Micah Fitzerman-Blue, a writer and producer on Transparent. How did you get involved in the show? And I know you've, you've known Jill for a long time. Yeah. Uh, 
she and I had done some uh, event organizing for an organization that we helped to start called the Eastside Jews. Word. Uh, which is sort of like a, it's like a street gang. Uh-huh. Um, but instead Jewish. of like a street, instead of like, you know, roughing up people, we we have uh, like Havdalah services at a spice store uh-huh. or go to the Korean spa for Rosh Chodesh. Which is, I don't even know what that is. Me either. But we went to the, <laughs> went we went to to the, the spa and it was fantastic. Uh-huh. Anyway, she, uh, when her parent came out, she, Jill, Jill is uh, an incredible like medium for translating her life into her art. And um, she wrote this amazing pilot. And I was lucky enough to read it. And then she got to shoot it and saw cuts. And it's just, it's just it was the best thing. Um, yeah. And so when she called... Uh, and said that she got to put a writer's room together. This is before the show even got picked up. Uh, she asked if uh, if I'd be interested in, in writing on it and uh, had not ever done staff writing on a on a TV show. I mostly had done features before before this. Mm-hmm. And just the, the idea of getting to hang out with Jill uh, for um, days on end uh, seemed pretty great. Yeah. So said yes. You know, like Zachary talked a lot about how much love there is in the show and, and how much love there is in the kind of the community that's building the show and how, what an important uh, aspect that is to the show. Yeah. You know, we call it the writer's womb and it's, it's like a very nurturing matriarchal um, loving community. I don't know if you, you know, it's like sometimes you go to a restaurant and you can, you can sort of taste the ingredients in the food mm-hmm. uh, and I think that we we try to make this show with good ingredients. Um, and on set, the the writers and the producers and the directors and the actors are all collaborating, and it's a very it feels very fluid. Um, like improvisation is encouraged, and it is in the writers' room also. Mm-hmm. Your father is a rabbi, yeah, correct. What do you think about your background made you? particularly suitable to writing on Transparent? Well, I guess I'll come clean quickly and just say, I do know what Rosh Chodesh is. <laughs> you were lying. I was lying. I was trying to... See, was, I knew. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, I, I don't want you to think, like, that I was, like, too Jewy. Right. Uh, but I am. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh-huh. I'm the son of the uh, conservative rabbi from Tulsa. Growing up in Tulsa... You really get to know who you are because you are defining yourself in opposition to everything around you. So I grew up sort of in two worlds. I grew up in the world of my family and our congregation and sort of the the small circle of people who, you know, who um, thought and talked and read the same things that our family was reading, um, our own little um, little bubble uh, and then also the outside world of Tulsa. I grew up in, I, I went to an Episcopal school for 12 years. I was often like, I was the Jew, um, <laughs> which, which also meant because of like the lack of sort of diversity at our school, that was often just like, I was like the person of color. I was the, I was, I represented otherness and especially growing up in the nineties, which is like the height of multiculturalism. There was lots of sort of like fascination sort of mm-hmm. anthropological fascination with the Jew. Um, so, and also I was a selling point. Right. A little bit for the school and for the community. So we have a Jew. We have a Jew. <laughs> so, so there was like, you know, there was like Hanukkah day. Oh, for you. When I would, you know, so like I would, I would bring like dreidels for the whole class. Wow. And, uh, 
And then I realized like a little too late that like passing out Hanukkah guilt was playing into a bunch of stereotypes. So it's just like, I was like the little Jew boy giving Jew gold to the Christian kids. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It was, so it was just, there's lots of, uh, lots of, uh, good time to feel different and uh-huh. other. And I don't know, you kind of figure out a little bit who you are if you're different. Yeah. I want to talk about kind of the Jewiness of the show. Yeah. Hit me. Um, you know, forward magazine called it maybe the Jewiest show ever. Yeah. Um, there was a Emily Nussbaum tweet that you I saw on your Twitter feed yeah. that you retweeted that she said that it was both the most anti-Semitic and the most philo-Semitic show ever. Yeah. Why? So what? What do you think is anti-Semitic about it, or potentially anti-Semitic? It's not that it's anti-Semitic. It's it's more that it's a little self-hating. Mm-hmm. Like there are a bunch of Jews in the room who can pinpoint all the things about Jewish culture that is just gross uh you know some of it takes the form of sort of the piety of a certain kind of progressive judaism i think you know the show is a little bit of a sounding board for a bunch of progressive values Mm -hmm. we're also quick to caution ourselves and have our characters also be aware of how privilege and progressive values often make us feel like assholes and look like assholes uh and you know i think that is i think the jewish american community is ground zero for that um, well-intentioned, beautifully meaning people who sometimes don't realize um, that they sound like people with a lot of privilege uh, who are, you know, doing good work. Yeah. Um, you know, the example uh, in, in in my mind is always like we have an ongoing, uh, persistent uh, problem with race in America and people are just beginning, I think, for the first time in a long time to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And a refrain in the Jewish community is Abraham Joshua Heschel marched with Martin Luther King to Selma. Uh, and it's like that somehow forgives, um, you know, our role as, uh, as somewhere between white and not white Americans of great privilege for a long time. It's just, it's, it's that. And then there's also just, you know, there's a Jewish culture just in small ways, like Jewish food. Like there's something about a big tub of coleslaw or chopped liver that is like comforting and disgusting. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's a shot that I really love in um, the opening uh, episode of season two, mm-hmm. which is they're sort of shooting around the, the wedding and there's this close-up shot of the chin of this like guy, uh, like this kind of flabby waddle of a chin, uh, <laughs> while he's eating, just in profile. Yeah, it's not a beautiful shot, but it it just that to me communicates what I think Nuss, Emily Nussbaum is saying about like how we portray Jews. It's just like we're we're a, a, a deep feeling neurotic, uh, but occasionally gross people. What it has done, I think it's given everyone this sort of dual education, both in trans issues and also in Jewish issues and how they pertain to sexuality, like how Judaism understands uh, transness and sort of the different facets or manifestations of sexual expression yeah. and gender expression. Like, that's great. That's really cool to know. Uh, but I do sometimes feel like the show is a Trojan horse for uh, for Judaism, where like the horse is gender and trans issues, mm-hmm. but the Greeks 
our Judaism. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm so with you. like sometimes, you know, we have a character who's a rabbi. We uh, in the third season, not to spoil things, like we may still we may we may get still Jewier. In the second season, we have Holocaust flashbacks that deal with both like the Jewish experience of the Holocaust or of of the rise of the Nazi Party and also the sort of queer Berlin. Um, so we're kind of we're trying to occupy the space between. Mm-hmm. That's not a necessity, I think, to tell the story of what it's like to be trans in America, yeah. you know, in 2015. Yeah. 2016. Jesus. We do see ourselves as victims often, you know, or triumphing over yeah. victimization. You can easily see that parallel in the trans world of, you know, people being victimized and trying to triumph over that. So it seems like it's, 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 a, it's a nice match, at, at the very least. Yeah, I mean, what are, but it's weird. It's like not to get too heady, but like... If you're, if you're an American Jew, like pretty much you haven't faced a lot of persecution yeah. or prejudice in your lifetime. If you're young enough not to have emigrated here, uh, you know, in 1945. Right. Even in Oklahoma. Even in Oklahoma. Yeah. And, and yet like there is a world out there, uh, outside of America that hates us. Right. Uh, so I think the narrative of being a victim mm-hmm. uh, is very safe and very easy. And there's like a defensive crouch that makes the world very simple. Um, and I think it takes a different kind of, uh, I don't want to call it courage, but it takes it, it. You have to make a choice to sort of step out and say like, what if I'm not a victim? What if I'm in a position of, uh, of agency? Uh, and, and, and how am I going to choose to live? Mm-hmm. I think for a character like Mora Pfefferman, you know, she had in her past life enjoyed a ton of privilege. And now, now she's seeing the world uh, with some of that privilege taken away, mm-hmm. which is what we talked a lot about in the second season. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I think, I think for Mora, she is an example of someone who can occupy both both worlds. She can feel her victimhood. She can connect that to sort of Jewish victimhood. Mm-hmm. We talked about, you know, the inherited trauma right, exactly. of the Holocaust, of the epigenetic memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's also someone who still has a house in the Palisades. Yeah. She still has a college education. She still has friends and family and people in her world and a safety net that, that like give her a lot, a lot of comfort and security. Yeah. So I want to get back to the, the kind of the, the portrayal of Judaism in the show. And I wonder, you know, is there ever a concern in the writer's room that we're portraying Jews basically every bad aspect of Judaism. I mean, that scene with Josh just negotiating the shit out of that tour van. Yeah. Is there, is that ever a fear? Like, oh, maybe we're going, maybe we're taking these, you know, stereotypes in a sense, rather than, than picking them apart. We were basically just shining a light on them. I've talked to some, I've talked to some Jews about <laughs> sure the show. Yeah. And one thing I hear, and maybe this is related to, to sort of this question. Yeah. One thing they say is I loved all the Jewish stuff, but I was worried that people who weren't Jewish weren't going to get it. Yeah. Which means like they were going to judge it. They were going, it's going to like stoke the fires of their like anti-Semitism. It was going to turn them into Jew haters. Like, cause we were finally exposing what it really is like to be a Jew. Yeah. Which made me sad 
not because there aren't people out there who can watch this show and use it as a handbook to hate us, mm-hmm. but because people aren't able to actually enjoy the show and see themselves reflected back in it yeah. because they're worried about uh, how others might perceive it. I, I think we have an obligation just to do the thing that we think is best and allow people to interpret it and try really hard to make it, you know, make it clear what we're, what we're trying to say. Yeah. But if people feel protective over the way that Jews are portrayed, you know, I feel sorry for them yeah. because they can't watch the show just as an audience member yeah. worried about other people. The, there's a line that's uh, in the, the final episode that you co-wrote that Jeffrey Tambor says when uh, he says, you know, steer clear of anyone who is overly attached to dogma. We, we encounter a lot of dogma. We have Judaism. We have radical feminism. We also have uh, queer politics, yeah. gender politics. Right now, uh, it's mostly on the internet. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of dogma um, around gender and gender expression. People, people, there's, there's territoriality about sort of how people are able to be trans, how people are able to express their, uh, their gender, uh, express their gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminds me of the ways that people are Jewish, right? Like there's this ecosystem of people who are on a spectrum of observance. There's this ecosystem of people who believe certain things and don't believe certain things. And, you know, you, you hope that all of those things can coexist as long as they're not, you know, being assholes to each other. Um, that, I, that idea of kind of religious fluidity as a parallel to gender fluidity. I mean, I feel like the American Jewish experience is like totally about this religious spectrum uh, and a spiritual spectrum. It's like, eh, take what you want, do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that. And the walls between denominations are sort of breaking down. Yeah. People, people don't care if they're reform or conservative or orthodox. They just want, they want something that matches their lives, that feels authentic to them. And I think the same is true for people and their gender and their sexuality. Like people are, people are looking for who they are and they want to see themselves reflected back in their relationships, in their sexual partners, in the mirror. Uh, and it's this sort of quest for authenticity mm-hmm. that I think, uh, I think unifies these two ideas. Well, I'm very excited about season three already. It's when is that? Is that going to be the same kind of schedule? Do you think? Uh, it'll be a little earlier. Okay. Uh, so we took no break. The writers between the second and third season, we went right into it. Wow. So uh, it'll be sort of early fall um, okay. for the third season. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on what I think is the finest piece of television in the last whatever years. Um, and uh, thanks for uh, kibitzing with yeah. us. Thanks, Sam. Jews have a long history of using humor to cope with tragedy and adversity. And for me, nobody does it better than my 95-year-old Nana. Do you remember that? Can you tell that whole joke? Well, uh, these three uh, Jewish guys had just come out of temple on Saturday morning. And so this interviewer for a paper said, you know, I want to write a story about what you want people to say at your funeral. So the first one said, well, I want him to say he was just a stalwart member of the temple. He gave money, and he gave money to Israel, and he was just wonderful father and, and had a wonderful family. So he said, well, that's very nice. And he said to the next one, 
Now, what do you want them to say at your funeral when they go by the casket? He said, well, I want them to say that I was a very religious person and I practiced the Jewish religion faithfully and I was a good husband and father and uh, gave money to Israel. And, you know, that's what I want them to, to say about me. So the third one came up and he says, when they pass the casket, what do you want them to say? He said, I want them to say, look, he's moving. <laughs> did, you, did you have a bat mitzvah? Or was that, did you have a bat mitzvah, or was that not a thing? Not in the Reformed Temple. They didn't do bar mitzvah. I was confirmed. And they had confirmation. And, and what was that? What did they have to do for that? You were 16 years old, and you bought a white dress and went down the aisle, and the rabbi whispered a secret in your ear, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was, anyway, he told you to be a good Jewish person and stuff. Religion to me is, if I'm very happy, I thank God for everything good. And if I'm very sad, I look to God for comfort. And that's all religion's ever meant to me, with all the Sunday school I went to. <laughs> Where did your father come from? My father had come to Denver. The story of him coming over for Rush from Russia is another crazy, horrible story. He left Russia. His parents both died, and he left Russia on the Bremen. He got there somehow through Germany and left on the Bremen and came over here. He soon learned that coming to the United States from Russia uh, was sort of degrading. If you were from Russia, you weren't so great. And then he had this store, and he was always helping everybody, and he became a one of the first members of the Reformed Temple in Denver, which was a big thing. I know a Jewish, a, a Russian joke. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, uh, the, the Cossacks were plundering everywhere, and they came to this Jewish house, and first they raped the daughter, and they raped the mother, and they raped the two other girls that were visiting, and the little grandmother was huddled in the corner. And the guy said, hey, what about her? And he, the other uh, Cossack said, oh, she's too old. And the grandmother said, never mind. A pogrom is a pogrom. That seems like a good place to end, I think. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, Nana. You're welcome. <laughs> Christopher Noxon is an author, journalist, and illustrator. He's the author of the novel Plus One, which Mad Men creator Matthew Weiner called well-observed, honest, and laugh-out-loud funny, and Rejuvenile, Kickball, Cartoons, Cupcakes, and the Reinvention of the American Grown-Up. He told the story of converting to Judaism at a recent literary deathmatch live event in Los Angeles. Sadly, the audio recording from that night seems to have mysteriously vanished. So, he agreed to tell us the story. So, converting to Judaism requires three basic steps. 
I first learned these steps 20 years ago after falling in love with a woman who proudly identified as Jewish. The three requirements are, number one, approval of a panel of rabbis known as a bet Dean. Number two, immersion in a ritual bath called a mikvah. And number three, circumcision. Now that last requirement applies to all men, even those who are like me, not that you asked, already circumcised. It's required by the Orthodox, conservative, and even by the most groovy reform and reconstructionist rabbis. They all want your blood. For the already circumcised, the ritual is called Haftat Dam Brit. It's performed by a moil, often a urologist, who pricks the band of skin under the head of the penis with a needle while reciting a blessing and swabbing up the blood with a cotton ball. Look, I didn't grow up with any real religion. My dad descended from Canadian Quakers, but never went to church in his life. He and my mom, a beatnik feminist, named me not for the star of the New Testament, but after Christopher Robin. Growing up, whatever spiritual yearnings I had were satisfied by Star Wars. My best friend Jimmy was an altar boy who prayed to a spooky guy on the cross. I was good with Obi-Wan. The first Jewish ritual I ever experienced was my friend Michael Landsberg's bar mitzvah. The service was long and super boring, but afterwards there was a chocolate fountain and a live disco band. At the time, my parents were divorced and I lived with my mom and her girlfriend, Pam. Besides being committed feminists, they were spiritual seekers who did consciousness-raising retreats in the sequoias. There was talk in our house of the cosmic muffin. So I complained. I said, how come Michael got this bar mitzvah and all I got was a green t-shirt with a text of the Equal Rights Amendment? I think Robert Bly and Iron John had been in the Utney Reader that month because my mom got to work creating a youthhood rite of passage ritual. A few weeks later, my mom and Pam took me out to a friend's beach house in Zuma and we did this, we did this whole thing. I have dim memories of wearing some kind of robe while candles were lit and bongos were beaten and long silences were observed, Mom made up a scroll with calligraphy on parchment. And then we went skinny dipping because that's what you do in 1981 with your two moms. In the end, my rite of passage hadn't been all that different from Michael's. We both had our scrolls. And like Michael, we got pictures. He got a portrait of himself wearing a wide-collared tan shirt staring out the window of the Wilshire Boulevard Temple, and I got this photo of myself crouched next to a stone bunny rabbit, wet and butt naked. Let's just say I grew up slightly scarred and deeply skeptical of religion and ritual. I was proudly unaffiliated without a tribe. Still, I married that lovely Jewess from Beverly Hills, and we went along with her demand that we raise the kids Jewish. At the temple school where we sent our three kids, when they talked about interfaith family, I knew what that meant. That meant the wife and the children were the faithful, and I was the inter. And it was all good. I went to services, I did Shabbat, I played along with a ritual in this kind of half-assed exploratory way. When people asked, I'd say that I wasn't Jewish, but that I was doing Jew. And in so doing... I started reading Abraham Heschel, and I came to look at God not as this omnipotent decider, but as an ongoing action of creativity and caring. And that pretty much vibed with my own guru Obi-Wan's take on the God question. You know, it's an energy 
created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. A year or so back, I decided it was time to make it official. I'd been wearing the team jersey, but it wasn't who I was. So to seal the deal, I had to get over that ritual bloodletting. On the one hand, I felt like, why would I join any group that required such as this insane tribal rite? Like, this is nothing but a jumping-in ritual, like the beatings and hazing ceremonies done by street gangs or fraternities. And then I thought, hold on, this is only as big a deal as I make it. I'd be fine. You know, I'd had my junk handled by plenty of Jewish doctors. And so on this random recent Thursday, the wife and I schlepped off to Calabasas to get my prick pricked. In the old days, adult circumcision was done by a high priest in the temple. These days, at least in the circles that I travel in, it's done by a guy called Dr. Andy. The appointment was at 9.30 at night after the moonlighting moil could get his kids to sleep. We knocked on this door of a tract house and Dr. Andy led us into a home office next to his laundry room and he sat us down and he and my wife talked about Jews and rituals and the mass circumcision of a lost tribe of Uganda. But the truth is, at a certain point, I stopped being able to hear words made by other humans in the room because my head was spinning on the thought of what was about to happen. And then it did. Dr. Andy put on these surgical gloves and he pulled out one of those little plastic lancets that diabetics use to get a blood sample. And I undid my pants and suddenly I got super self-conscious about the underwear I was wearing. It was striped and I felt like that was way too festive. Uh, And then he read some blessings in Hebrew and there was an audible snap and some awkward pinching and prodding. Let's just say there's not a ton of blood flow at that moment. Finally, the necessary droplet was produced and it was over. You're Jewish, said Dr. Andy. And not quite, not officially. I still had to appear before the Bet Dean and get dunked in the mikvah, which I did a few days later with my kids and wife and this panel of incredible rabbis. And then we went for Chinese. The whole thing was great. It was perfect. I'm still not sure about that circumcision part, however. It was just as bizarre and intrusive and nonsensical as I'd imagined, almost as much as having a 13-year-old boy pose naked with a stone bunny, but for sure it made an impact. Which may be quite obviously the point. A week after doing that whole prick thing on my first Shabbat as a Jew, I was home doing some Talmudic study, which in my case means reading the horoscope in the LA Times. I was expecting the usual vague hallmarky platitude, but I was stopped cold by this message. The difference between a team and a tribe runs deep. The ideology you share with a tribe is as complicated a matchup as DNA. It actually said that. It is like, holy shit, that was it. I'd been on the team for a long time, but with that drop of blood and the DNA in it, I'd finally joined the tribe. Separately, they're Rabbi David Kasher and comedian Moshe Kasher. Together, on the kibbutz, these two brothers will debate the bar mitzvah ritual. This is Kasher versus Kasher. 
Uh, we were going to talk a little bit about bar mitzvahs because that's like the big transition point for a for a, a young Jewish man, a young, a young Jewish boy becoming a man. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know they do them for women now too? That's the rabbi, David Kasher. Sorry, yes, of course. Amazing. Bot mitzvah. <laughs> no, but you're, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. We actually, the most religious side of our family, they only do bar mitzvahs for, oh, for, for men. For boys, yeah. Wow. So. But actually, um, historically speaking. And that's the comedian, Moshe Kasher. Uh, they jo- only did them for men, even if you weren't that religious, right? Isn't the bat mitzvah, which has sort of been adopted by mainstream Judaism, even within the Orthodox uh, sector, is a fairly modern iteration. The truth is that the bar mitzvah as a celebration is also a modern uh, celebration. That is, bar and bat mitzvah, these terms, they just technically mean you're now of legal age. And when I say legal age, I mean like you're now obligated in Jewish law. You have to keep the commitment. Like bar mitzvah means son of the commandments and bat mitzvah means daughter of the commandments. So technically to become a bar mitzvah is just to become old enough. Like it's like you turn 18. Like there doesn't have to be any kind of celebration. There doesn't have to be any kind of party. All of it's that like is when, modern. When Mary and, Kate and Ashley Olsen became 18, we all had a celebration, but traditionally right. nobody had been planning that. <laughs> right. that, was, that was organic. That yeah. just happened. We were just happy about it. Right. We yeah. had a ticker tape parade. <laughs> sure. And, yeah. yeah. No, so, so it's just like you're now able to buy cigarettes in Judaism kind of thing. Like you, right. you're, you've reached the age and it's- You thir- can buy spiritual cigarettes. Spiritual cigarettes, yeah. Right. right. And actually traditionally it was 13 for a boy, or now man, and 12 for a girl. Like they had some sense that women oh, matured yeah, faster. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Which I guess is true. Women but, but, but you faster. said traditionally, but I thought the whole. No, it's a, it, there was a concept that there's a certain age. That's tradition. I like see. at a certain age, you are now a full member of the community. You are now a man. You are now a woman. But they just didn't have, and you have a big party with like an Indiana Jones theme. Too. Right. <laughs> that would be. To be honest, that would be amazing if you did, though. Like, if biblically they celebrated Indiana yeah. Jones, they were like, it has not been created yet, but, <laughs> but there, there's day. something, you know, the right. Spielberg-Lucas, just that connection. One day, 50 Cent will perform. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that a connection? Does anybody know? Was Lucas involved in Indiana Jones? Lucas? Yes. He was. No. George. George no, Lucas, you're talking about no? Steven Spielberg. Right, Spielberg, but I feel Lucas, Lucas had a, I think he was a producer. Now. I hope so. Um, we'll edit it out if okay. I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, what, uh, and were your bar mitzvahs very different or did you do them with this? I mean. They were pretty similar. They were different in that I enjoyed mine. Yeah. You did? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, I've always, now, I've always know, been into the Jewish thing. The thing is, David is, didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I have what's crazy. called like selective it's, Jewish memory. It's full on mm. Stockholm syndrome. Like <laughs> it is though. There's no possible way I- you enjoyed that. Like, I mean, I enjoyed the idea of it. I enjoyed me, that that I was doing a let me, sacred thing. Let me paint please, a picture. Please, David and I grew up in Oakland, California, going to public schools. We are se- we were secular kids uh, who grew up in a, a secular neighborhood. Uh, in an, uh, basically uh, all black public schools, uh, 70% black public schools, mm-hmm. where we learned about things like he's the DJ, I'm the rapper. Right. Then our father is incre- was incredibly religious. Uh, after the divorce, he became increasingly so. And he, in fact, married a woman that was even from a family that was even more religious than him. And so then he became, he became sort of affiliated with like super ultra Hasidic. Anyway, the point of it all is by the time we ended up going to New York, he was literally living in the shtetl. And so the bar mitzvah looked like this. It was a, a wedding hall in Hasidic Brooklyn in Borough Park. Yours was in Brooklyn. Mine was in upstate New York in a more religious area. <laughs> is that Spring true? Valley, yeah. Spring, the, well, uh, right? The cats, like it's Catskills kind of thing. The, literally. Of, of, of the, the Catskills of Hasidic Judaism. An ugly hall. And there was a stark, thick, 
opaque wall between one side and the other, men on one side, women on the other, never the twain shall meet. And then I will never forget the musician, the musical <laughs> guest at your, it's literally an old, like nerdy Hasidic man, w- one man with a, uh, with a keyboard, with a keyboard, Casio, keyboard, yeah. Casio keyboard <laughs> playing <laughs> presets, <laughs> playing <laughs> preset drums. See, now that would be considered hip and cool. Here's what I'll say about the bar mitzvah. Please say something. I think that uh, I, I think that it is a self-conscious sort of uh, cause of angst in the rabbinical community among the non-orthodox that the bar mitzvah marks for a lot of Jews the end of their religious life, which is kind of interesting because it's supposed to be the beginning. And in fact, with a lot of like reform and conservative Jews, the Parents put their kids into these classes so that they'll study until their bar or bat mitzvah. Right. And once that is uh, achieved, then they're out until maybe they come back when they get married, but probably not. Yeah. And uh, so that's interesting. Like, it's supposed to be this time where you, like, take on the yoke of the Torah. And, in fact, for a lot of people, it's where they uh, they buck the yoke of Judaism altogether. Here's what I'll say about the bar mitzvah, which is that I think— it was created as a ceremony or observance or whatever at a time when people really were coming of age at 12, 13, 14. I mean, they're starting to work and they're obviously, you know, physically maturing. But nowadays, when our age of majority of not being a minor is 18, it, it would make a lot more sense to have the bar mitzvah ceremony yeah. at a time when you're really becoming a man or becoming a woman. Like so, I would I would actually advocate for if I could be the president of Judaism, I would advocate for 18 year old bar mitzvahs in America because it would actually mean something. And then maybe it would wouldn't be the last time you saw someone because it would actually the person having the bar mitzvah would be cognitively developed enough well, yeah, to really take thing. stock of their lives and what their adulthood meant. And yeah, because at 13, for me, it, the only reason I had a bar mitzvah was because I was, it was like a threat. It was like, look, this is the... You have to. You know, this might be the last thing your grandmother ever is able to attend. Uh-huh. And of course, we were, I was just on the phone with her five minutes ago. <laughs> and they just said Holocaust five times. Like, yeah. You're like, I don't even know if that... <laughs> Holocaust, they're like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do All it. All right, fine, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think, yeah, you're not... You can't understand what's good about it at 13, all you, except getting presents. Yeah, it's just not, it's not meaningful because you and are, in our culture, you're still a kid. Yeah. If right. you're a 14-year-old, you're still a kid. And, you know, in the in the, the Jewish community we came from, you know, men would wear these black hats. So you put these black hats also on these 13-year-old boys when they have the brand. It just ridiculous. looks ridiculous. So how, yeah. do we, how do we make this happen? I just, my little thing is that I, I, I hear what both of you are saying and I push back a little bit because I kind of think like, yeah, 18 would be too late. First of all, Nobody would do it. The bar mitzvah rate would go oh, yeah. from whatever it is I to mean, like barely 4%. Now, yeah. Or maybe people would hang ar- around in the Jewish community for another five years. I'm saying no. I'm saying yes. I'm saying they'd be like 15 and be like, fuck you, mom. Fuck you, dad. I'm out of here. Yeah. And then by the time they're 18, they'd just be like, so maybe in a weird way, it's good because it's like, it, it's a little link to the, you know, in the Reformed Judaism, they do confirmation, which is so Catholic, it makes my skin oh, crawl. Yeah. But they at do like 16, right? At 16, they like keep you around to confirmation and yeah. then they lose you. Wait, but they still have a bar mitzvah? They do. They yeah. have bar mitzvah and confirmation. And confirmation. Yeah, I yeah. remember that. So then maybe that's the thing. We have like one ceremony every year from 13 on just to keep Forever. you in Judaism. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Until you uh, get married and then, yeah. Right. Check. That's cool. Happy 42nd bar mitzvah. <laughs> Please don't go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. 
Mishy Harmon is the host of Israel Story, one of my favorite podcasts. It's often referred to as the Israeli This American Life, and it's full of beautifully reported stories about life in Israel, and I seriously could not recommend it more highly, so check it out. This is his Bar Mitzvah story for A Kid Walks Into a Bar. Yeah, I have a fairly good Bar Mitzvah story. Um, I don't know if it would pass a pitch meeting in our show. But, <laughs> That's okay. But um, so I had, uh, you know, the service in, at synagogue where I read the Torah portion and all of that. And um, then there was also a party that night. It was on the roof of an art gallery in, in old Jaffa. It just happened to be that the exhibit at the art gallery were these like huge nude uh, <laughs> pictures. <laughs> Today and, you are a man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like all my friends kept on slipping out of my bar mitzvah party to go downstairs to the exhibit to look at these <laughs> at these pictures. You had like the most legendary bar mitzvah ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then my parents would ask like a bunch of their friends to uh to to sort of give speeches, I guess, about me. And like, you know, I don't even know what one says really at a bar mitzvah speech, but I sort of had to stand there as they like put their arm around my shoulders and like said, like what a good kid I was or something uh-huh. like that. And then one of the people was a really amazing gentleman who is then in his 80s called Walter Eitan, who, uh, who was uh, a old, old, old family friend. He had established Israel's foreign minister, ministry. He was like, you know, a substantial person. He had been Israel's ambassador in France for many, many years. And then Walter started talking about me. It was really quite touching. And then, and then Walter forgot my name <laughs> in, the, in the middle of the speech. And he was like, you know, I really want to tell you how wonderful... And then he just looked at me and... Could, I think he called me Miki. Okay. <laughs> it's close enough. Yeah. So is there anything you would change if you could go back and, and do your bar mitzvah all over again? What, what would you change? I think I would try to maybe seize the opportunity and kiss Ganit Grey. Wow. Uh-huh. I feel that you have a certain, like, you know, aura on your bar mitzvah day that maybe allows you to kiss pretty girls. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is it for episode two of The Kibbits. If you liked it, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. It makes a huge difference to our self-esteem. If you didn't like it, well, as my grandfather might have said, gegesund. I'd like to thank our guests, Zachary Drucker and Micah Fitzerman-Blue, David Moshe Kasher, Mishy Harmon, Christopher Noxon, and of course, my Nana. The second season of Transparent is available to stream now on Amazon. Watch it. It is great. At San Francisco Sketchfest this very weekend, Moshe Kasher will be doing a bunch of shows, including live recordings of his own podcast, The Hound Tall Discussion Series, where an expert attempts to give a talk on their field of expertise as a panel of comedians riffs and makes jokes. It's basically a TED Talk meets mystery science theater. Go see him live or download the podcast on the Nerdist Network. David Kasher's blog and podcast is available at Parshanut.com. And please check out Christopher Noxon's latest book, Plus One. This episode was produced by me, Dan Crane, with Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, and David Jargowski, with engineering by Brett Morris. Special thanks to Amelia Klein, Robin Kramer, Earwolf, and of course, Reboot. Our music is courtesy of Nunon Plus. Please like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at KibitzPod. And email us your comments at kibitzpod at gmail.com. Happy 2016 from the Kibbutz, a project of Reboot. Reboot.